0: I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. I'm also your host to this Throwback FDNY podcast. Like our museum, this podcast's mission is to help present the extraordinary history and unique heritage of the fire department in the five boroughs. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the department's first motorized vehicle hits the streets in 1901, fire protection at the 1939 World's Fair, and how a lower Manhattan blaze in nineteen seventy helped strengthen high-rise fire codes. Depending on your sense of history or maybe your age, your vision of responding fire apparatus, particularly in New York City, could range from a group of volunteers literally on a run pulling their pumper behind them, majestic fire horses galloping through city streets, or shiny red engines and trucks Sirens wailing on the move amongst congested traffic. Which one do you see? Well, in 1901, something big happened. For the first time, New Yorkers got a glimpse into the future. They saw a motorized fire apparatus answering the call. The response vehicle, manufactured by the Locomobile Company of America, belonged to the FDNY chief of department, Edward Croker. In fact, the chief purchased it himself and kept it with him at Engine 33, where he lived full-time in quarters. To note, a common occurrence at the turn of the 20th century. Though owned by Chief Croker, the car became a de facto department vehicle. Chief Croker was ahead of his time and well aware that a move to motorized apparatus was inevitable. He said, quote, I need an automobile, and I need it badly. My territory runs from City Island to Coney Island, and four horses a day are not enough to carry me to fires, end quote. He also added the quote, I think eventually there will be automobile engines, trucks, and hose carts. End quote. He was right. Now, I found an interesting letter to the editor in an issue of the New York Times about this new-fangled machine and what was seen in early days as aggressive driving techniques. The writer complained in part, quote, On a number of occasions, I have seen Croker's motor car come very near to running down pedestrians, and these accidents were all due to the fact that that the machine is not fitted with a distinguishable, alarm-giving device. When running over 30 miles an hour, the sound of the bell mounted on the dashboard is lost in the roar of the engine, end quote. Though progressive in his views of motorized apparatus, Chief Croker didn't quite have complete faith in their reliability. How do we know this? Despite having a vehicle, he still maintained his department-provided horses and carriages, just in case. Chief Croker's skepticism, or backup plan for motorization, is on display at the New York City Fire Museum. The Chief's original horse-drawn buggy still awaits action on our museum's apparatus floor. It's a sight to see. Shortly after Chief Croker's personal response vehicle made its appearance on city streets, the FDNY itself purchased its first two motorized vehicles, both automobiles, one for the fire commissioner and one for the chief of the department. Both were American Mercedes. Popular opinion continued to change, and it was clear that the days of the fire horse were surely numbered. The first movement towards motorizing fire apparatus came just a few years later, when FDNY put in service a motor-driven, high-pressure hose wagon assigned to Engine Company 72. That was followed by a plan by then-Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo to transition the entire department to motorized apparatus. And for those who want to read a fascinating piece on the topic of New York City's move to motorized fire apparatus, Fire Commissioner Joseph Johnson, Jr., himself a former journalist, wrote and published a detailed account. When Johnson came into office in 1911, there were only 17 pieces of motorized apparatus. When he left in 1914, there were 168. I also supply additional information on where to find it in the newsletter. I highly recommend it for anyone interested in the history of FDNY apparatus. I know many of you love antique apparatus. The old horse-drawn and early motorized equipment that we have at the museum not only get a lot of attention from our visitors, they're also the most popular photo spots. A final note for our fire apparatus buffs. This will make you cringe or possibly bring a tear to your eye. Back in the 1920s, the very last horse-drawn chief's buggy to see service was sold at auction for a mere $2. Even when compared to today's money, that's still only equal to approximately $29 in 2020. And now a message from the president of the New York City Fire Museum's Board of Trustees.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Ted Grant, the president of the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees. On behalf of the board, we thank you for listening to the Throwback FTNY podcast. Since 1870, our museum has sought to preserve, educate, and celebrate the heroic history of the men and women of the fire department in New York. In 1987, we found a permanent home in Lower Manhattan in the renovated 1904 Beaux Arts Firehouse that had served as the quarters of Engine 30. Inside, our impressive collection illustrates the evolution of the fire department from its origins through today. Our Fire Safety Learning Center is a hub for schoolchildren to learn about the importance of fire prevention. Our museum is also home to the first permanent memorial to the New York City Fire Department members lost on September 11, 2001. We hope that everyone who has come to visit the FDNY 343 Memorial since 2002 has been provided a place to reflect on the Fire Department's darkest day while coming face to face with our fallen heroes. Please stay up to date with us and learn more about our exhibitions, online catalog, and browse our museum shop online at nycfiremuseum.org. Again, thank you for listening, and now back to the episode.
0: Nestled between the Grand Central Parkway, Long Island Expressway, and Van Wyck Expressway, lies Flushing Meadows Park in Queens. Many of the structures you see from those highways are remnants of the World's Fair of the 1960s, including the Unisphere and the New York State Pavilion, both made famous in the movie Men in Black. But the first World's Fair on the site took place back in 1939 into 1940, making for an interesting piece of FDNY history. The temporary buildings constructed for the World's Fair were not intended to last long, as such, they incorporate a lot of wood and inexpensive materials, all of which may for a high risk of fire. At the time, an article in WNYF, the FNY's official training magazine, called the facility a veritable lumberyard. This was a well-documented problem for the fire service. The first World's Fair held in New York in the 1800s on the grounds of what is now Bryant Park resulted in the entire facility being consumed in a spectacular blaze. Armed with all this information and situational awareness, the members of the FDNY looked at the 1939 World's Fair facilities with great concern. Initially, to help alleviate fears, the World's Fair Corporation was going to create its own fire department to protect the grounds and have it act independently of the FDNY. The corporation even hired a well-respected, retired FDNY assistant chief, Thomas Dougherty, to organize and oversee the standalone department. Included in the fair's enormous budget, was the purchase of multiple pieces of fire apparatus, and even the construction of new firehouses. They had big plans to protect the exhibition. But after some heated negotiation with the city's professional fire department, it was decided that the FDNY would assume responsibility for responding to any fire emergencies at the World's Fair. The department would write the specifications and operate the apparatus purchased by the corporation it was agreed upon that all fire apparatus and buildings would be turned over to the FDNY at the completion of the World's Fair. As a result, FDNY General Order Number 41 created Battalion 55 and authorized the organization of engine companies 324, 331, 332, and 333. Chief Dougherty stayed on with the World's Fair Corporation and commanded the Fire Guard, comprised of 65 retired members from the FDNY. The Guard would act in a fire inspection and prevention capacity and would be on patrol throughout the Flushing Meadow site. Documents exist that attest to some of the notable disagreements between the Department and the Corporation. Both sides bumped heads on issues big and small. One minor point of contention. Commissioner John McElligott objected to the Fair's requirement that FDNY members assigned to Battalion 55 wear a special emblem on their sleeve so they could be recognized and granted free admission to the fairgrounds. Commissioner McElligot acquiesced on that one, and you could see photographs of FDNY members displaying the fair's logo of a Trilon and Perisphere on their Class A uniforms. The New York City Fire Museum has several of those original patches in the collection, both in silver for members and company officers and in gold for chiefs. I'll include an image of them in our newsletter. Several significant fires did occur during both the construction and operation of the World's Fair. Records show, in their 32 months of service, the World's Fair companies responded to 237 alarms at the fairgrounds, with 166 confirmed fires, four of which went to multiple alarms. An interesting fact. Of all the firehouses built to support the 1939 World's Fair, there is only one that still exists today. For those who know Queens geography, you would be correct to say Engine 324 is the one. In 1939, that firehouse was in close proximity to one of the entrances to the World's Fair. It's our mission at the museum to preserve this history, educate people about it, and celebrate the colorful and vibrant contributions that the FDNY has made to New York City, its residents, workers, and everyone that comes to visit these crossroads of the world.
2: The New York City Fire Museum store can be found online at fdnymuseumshop.org. Exclusive merchandise includes our classic, superior quality NYC Fire Museum t-shirt featuring our treasured Brooklyn Engine Company 8 steam pumper and other museum artifacts. The back includes a firefighter scramble that was the museum's original logo. This one-of-a-kind shirt comes in adult sizes from small to double XL. Proceeds help support our preservation and educational programs. To browse additional apparel and products that celebrate the history of the fire department in New York City, go to fdnymuseumshop.org. That's fdnymuseumshop.org. Now more than ever, the New York City Fire Museum needs your support to pursue our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate Now, back to the episode.
0: Fifty years ago, on August 5, 1970, the FDNY faced a blaze that ushered in a sense of urgency to update New York City's fire code. It all started around 5.45 p.m. when an odor of smoke was noticed by some occupants on the 33rd floor of One New York Plaza in lower Manhattan. Minutes later a security guard saw some smoke coming from an opening in the ceiling, while at the same time, people in the lobby observed some flaming debris falling into the plaza, and on upper floors, smoke was now visible. Around 6 p.m., a security guard sounded the fire alarm for the building. However, that alarm was not connected to either an alarm service or the fire department. It only sounded in the building. By that time, Flames had spread considerably and were visible from the streets below and adjacent towers. At the same time, someone at Ford New York Plaza saw flames coming from windows on the 33rd floor and called the FDNY. Engines 6, 10, and 32, ladders 10 and 15, and Battalion 1 responded. Even before the companies arrived, the heat from the blaze was already intense enough to begin shattering the quarter-inch-thick plate glass windows, sending them crashing to the street. The fire was not only substantial, it was spreading fast, very fast. In 1970, high-rise buildings were not required to have central fire control stations that would have given the firefighters the status of numerous systems within the structure, which was still partially under construction. Members of Engine 10 and Ladder 15 took an elevator operated by two building employees up to the 31st floor, as is normal procedure. But when the building employees attempted to return to the lobby, the elevator went up instead, and the doors opened on the fire floor, floor 33. They were able to move the elevator again, but both employees sustained significant injuries. In fact, all elevators posed problems. Members of Rescue 1 and the Chief of Battalion 2 got stuck in an express elevator and had to breach the shaftway to escape. Many civilians were still in the building from the 11th floor upward. To make matters worse, the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems were not equipped with automatic shutdowns in case of smoke. As a result, the air they brought into the building fed the flames and increased the heat. It was estimated that temperatures at floor level, where temperatures are the lowest, were in excess of 100 degrees. At those temperatures, firefighters can be expected to operate effectively for only about five minutes. At temperatures above 200 degrees, the tolerance drops dramatically, and at 350 degrees, Skid can burn in less than a minute. Although the first-arriving companies were able to get water on the fire using a hose from the building's standpipe system, it was insufficient, and the intense heat where they mounted their attack on the third, third floor resulted in them sustaining serious burn injuries. Getting sufficient water to combat the spreading fire became extremely challenging. It seemed nothing in one New York plaza was working on the side of the FDNY. The intensity and complications encountered at this fire had Chief of Department John T. O'Hagan sound multiple alarms. The fire was finally brought under control just before midnight, about six hours after it began. One New York Clause's operations were so problematic that both Fire Commissioner Robert Lowry and Mayor John Lindsay responded and immediately began to discuss ways that safety could be increased inside high-rise office buildings. In all, two civilians were killed in the fire that day with nine civilians and 29 firefighters injured. This deadly fire, along with two other high-rise fire buildings soon thereafter, were the impetus for changes to the New York City Fire Code, Local Law 5. It looked to rectify many of the problems encountered at One Near Plaza, and the new code placed new requirements on buildings that are over 100 feet in height, manual fire alarm pull stations along escape routes in building hallways, the posting of established evacuation plans in all elevator lobbies, and mandatory fire drills conducted twice per year. The law also mandated full-time fire safety directors or building evacuation supervisors and designated floor wardens to be in charge of notifications and evacuations before FDNY arrives. To avoid what happened at one near plaza, HVAC systems were required to have smoke and fire detectors so the systems can curtail the supply of fresh air to feed a fire and which notify the FDNY of their triggering. The new code established the need for a fire control center in high-rise buildings where FDI officers can communicate to individual floors by phone or building wide through a public address system and can monitor numerous building systems. Last but not least, special elevator controls that send all elevators down to the lobby when a fire alarm goes off and have the ability to be key operated by firefighters were mandated on all towers. With direct assistance and ongoing direction from the Bureau of Fire Prevention, New York City fire codes have been updated several times since then, refining some of these initial life-saving changes prompted by the 1970 fire inside one New York plaza. If you work in a high-rise office building, it's absolutely imperative that you familiarize yourself with the safety and evacuation plans in your workplace. Know how to escape the building from your work area by at least two pathways. Learn how to transmit a fire alarm and know where the fire alarm pull stations are located on your escape route. The next time one of the required fire drills are conducted, be vigilant and attentive. You never know if practicing and planning may one day save your life or the life of one of your co-workers. These tips are not just applicable to high-rise buildings. I could tell you, whenever I'm in a public venue like one of New York's famous Broadway theaters, I always note where the exits are before the show begins and the light goes dark. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. The famous FDNY fireboat New Yorker was commissioned in 1891. At the time, the most powerful fireboat in the world. It was the first to have a strong steel hull, and it could pump 12,000 gallons per minute, an engineering feat unmatched in its day. So what was the Fireboat New Yorker's company designation when it first went into service? And here's a hint. It's not a Marine company number. The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. Thank you all for listening. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. Thank you to the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees, our staff, volunteers, and of course, our museum members. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this. We can all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. It starts in each of our homes by ensuring we all have a working smoke and carbon monoxide alarm. Thank you and be safe.